Hello and welcome to the Bases Pediatric SIG podcast. I'm your host, Ash Cox, and today I'm joined by Bas Van Horen. I'm sure I got the pronunciation right. I did double check before we started. Um, so for those of you joining me today, um, first and foremost, I want to I wanna wish medical staff and anyone associated with the with the current global pandemic all the best um i'm recording this from home at the moment so i'm I'm also going to apologize for any bizarre noises in the background or screaming children um i'll deal with them as as i need to so um i hope everyone's well and safe um i'm about further ado i'm going to hand you over to bass who's going to introduce himself uh, and we're going to go into a bit of LTAD today and discuss a recent publication. So, Bas, just if you'd like to introduce yourself to some of the listeners. Hi, uh, thanks for having me on, uh, Ash. So, no um, well, perhaps I can do a brief introduction um, of what got me into this field. Yeah, that'd be um, great. So, after graduating high school, I basically didn't really know what direction I wanted to go. Uh, however, I always like to do sports, so I visited an open day for the University of Applied Sports Sciences. And also, I initially did not find actually the topics that were being discussed are really interesting. My interest became larger and larger over time, and this growing interest was probably also driven by my own parallel career in athletics and also some coaching I was doing, where I tried to apply some of the learned concepts. And in my third or fourth year, I noticed I started questioning a lot of things that we were taught. Uh, and after graduating, I also therefore did a master to get some more in-depth information on sports and exercise related topics. However, also there I felt there wasn't enough depth in the discussion of the topics and therefore I decided I wanted to pursue a PhD, which is basically what I'm doing now. So I'm a freelance sports scientist, also pursuing a PhD at Maastricht University doing a little bit of coaching, so I don't have a lot of time anymore to do some coaching. And also still uh, doing a lot of uh, athletics if I'm not injured, uh, because I'm injured also quite a lot. Um, but yeah. that's basically what, what keeps me uh, busy these days. Brilliant. And it, yeah, I mean, for, for those people who, who aren't aware of your work, you've obviously got your website as well, which I had a little, a little look over. And it, it's nice to see that you know, PhD candidates such as yourself who are coming through really trying to translate the science into practice in, and have both elements. So you're not just a, a, you know, a science guy, you've also got the practical element to it as well. And obviously you're an athlete, uh, a fairly accomplished athlete as well, I believe. Yeah, I got Dutch national champion in 2017, got some other medals at the Dutch national championship. So and in that sense, quite, quite okay. But if you look, if you compare the Dutch level to like international level, it, it's not that huge. So I, mean, I almost qualified, <laughs> I guess, for the European Championships, but then I got injured, so that's quite a bummer. But it's it's a reasonable level, and I, I particularly like to get you know, the experience you take as an athlete, and then see how can you apply that experience into what you learn from research, and also what what I learned from reading the research, and also from coaching. How can I apply that stuff to myself to enhance my own performance? And that's, I guess, something I really like, the sort of interconnection between all these experiences and then using these experiences to get the maximum out of all activities. And that's yeah, that's something that really drives me and also one of the reasons why I really like to apply the research and not do some something that's very fundamental and that might be nice just in that very isolated perspective, but I also really like to think about, well, how then can we apply this stuff and is it actually applicable to practitioners or is there so many other things they have to think about that it might not make sense to, to, to recommend what we found in this very isolated basic experiment. And I, I'm like, if perhaps there are some scientists listening that do fundamental research, so I'm definitely, we need this fundamental research, definitely, but at some point also, of course, we need to translate this, and that's something I, I'm really interested in. Yeah, I mean, and that's something I'm passionate about as well, is really, you know, in the future, the, the, the biggest change that I'd like to see is is more of a, a pragmatic approach to research and what does it actually do, uh, you know, to those using it on the ground. 
the the first time I came across your research, Bass, was the uh, the cooling down paper that was published in Sports Med a while back, yeah. um, and then more recently, in fact, it was this month. It was published in the Journal of Strength Conditioning, I believe, was the LTAD paper that we're going to discuss a little bit more today. Um, yeah. What what is the the main difference? Is there a difference between adult athletes and and child or youth athletes? Well, definitely a lot of differences, actually. Um, and of course, the magnitude depends on the biological age of the child or adolescent. And I guess that's also one thing perhaps worth emphasizing, that we shouldn't see children or adolescents simply as small adults, but actually as individuals that require special training considerations based on their physical and also psychological stage of development. And, well, yeah. some interesting physical differences. I'm, I'm not an expert in the psychological differences, of course, uh, but, but some interesting physical differences between adults and children or adolescents include, for example, differences in their aerobic and anaerobic metabolism, differences in maximum muscle activation, muscle and tendon morphology and mechanical properties, as well as hormone levels. So there's a lot of things that basically differ and that we can go over, but perhaps it's not worth discussing all of them in detail. But perhaps it's interesting <laughs> yeah. to, to just discuss a few of these uh, in a bit more detail and see what that could mean for practitioners. Um, yeah, definitely. So if that's yeah. something into, we could, for example, discuss some differences in energy metabolism, uh, muscle and motor unit recruitment, if that's something you think is interesting. Yeah, well, that's... Yeah, definitely. I mean, muscle motor unit recruitment is, is, is certainly of interest. And when we start looking at the, the, the models that you've developed to try, help try and steer and inform practitioners, um, it, it, it starts to, to make sense why these models are in place. And for those people who are listening who are, who are wondering what I'm talking about, um, these models of of physical development, if you like, they've been around since since around the nineteen thirties. When I believe it was McGraw and colleagues who who first spoke about optimal windows, and that was based upon obviously the different physiology of 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 children and youth. Um, and more recently, the the LTAD framework um, that that was proposed by Ballier and Ballier and colleagues. So, could you just give a, a bit of rationale? And like you said, it's it's a massive spectrum. We could talk about a lot of things, but a bit of rationale for these models based upon the physiological changes that we see in in, in differences in mus muscle fiber recruitments as we age. Yeah. So. so well, perhaps I just focus a bit on the LTD model you, you mentioned yeah. by Balyi because it's probably the most widely known and applied long-term athlete development model. Um, so, so basically what this model, as well as quite some other LTD models that rely on these sensitive periods use, or basically, yeah, what they rely on, um, is either um, other athlete development plans for specific sports. For example, the LTD model relies on some other athlete development plans for specific sports development in Canada, and also relies on some practical experience of coaches and empirically tested athlete development models from the former Eastern Bloc countries. And yeah. you can already hear by this summary that there is not a lot of scientific evidence actually provided in these models. And the empirical observations, for example, are influenced by some subjective bias. Uh, for example, if a coach observed that his or her group of, let's say, 15-year-old soccer players, if they improved their 20-meter sprint performance following a few weeks of sprint training, then, of course, this should not be directly taken as evidence that this is a sensitive period to do sprint training. Yeah. As a result of some growth and maturation effects and other factors that, of course, could have led to these observed improvements. So if you really want to show that there is a sensitive period, you need to do well-controlled studies that sort of control for maturation as well as growth. But unfortunately, yeah. such studies weren't performed until a few years ago. And now we have very little studies. Um, but this is probably also one of the reasons why scientific evidence for these sensitive periods is really not provided in any of these LTD models. And actually, what, what I do often cite as evidence is a paper which you may also know by Firo and Firo. It's from 1999, if I'm, if I'm correct. 
and what yeah, these researchers. Right, yeah. yeah, you know the paper. Yeah, yeah. Not many yeah, people but... do. We've we've had this discussion before, Joe. Um, I'm trying to think we discussed that paper with. I think it was Joe Eisenman in in one of the earlier episodes. Um, mm-hmm. who's obviously heavily into the Altad, so we discussed it a bit there. But could you give a a bit of an overview for people who who aren't familiar with that paper? Yeah, sure. So so what these researchers did is basically to put together an overview of at what stage or what what age certain measures such as twenty meter sprint time or uh, hand grip strength increases faster and they they base this on very few longitudinal studies but primarily also on, on cross-sectional studies so they for example they measured uh, 15 year old boys 16 year old boys 17 year old boys and then uh, compared to the hand grip strength or 20 meter spin performance and what they for example found is that speeds as they measured by often by 20 meter spin performance increases fastest from I think between uh, 5 to 7 and 12 to 14 years in boys so there's a sort of rapid increase in how fast they can sprint and what LTD models subsequently when they have done is they have assumed that this growth and maturation related development also results in a phase where physical training would be most effective and that's one of the things that of course is an issue because we don't know if you grow or if you, based on your growth and maturation, if something increases very fast, if that actually also makes it more effective to train that um, general motor ability, if, if you would like to call it that, but perhaps it could actually be less effective because you're already improving it so much, basically, by growth and maturation. And, and then I guess that's a an, an whole discussion we, we yeah, sort of raised also in the paper because there isn't really a lot of evidence that actually shows this to be correct, even though this is a lot of times cited as scientific evidence for the sensitive periods in these models. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, just to frame it for the listeners as well, a lot, a lot of this information that, that we're talking about here from, from previous research, or albeit limited, is is a, a snippet of, of kind of what's been fed into providing um, evidence for the development of these LTAB models. What what else is, or what other evidence is there provided um, for the sensitive periods in LTAB models? Why why a model can can all children and youth as they develop do they all conform to this model, or is there a variance? Yeah, that that's a very good point actually, because well. I guess one of the positive things about, in particular, the LTED model by Balier is that it's one of the, well, not necessarily first models, but perhaps because it's so well known, one of the first models that became known basically that differentiated between biological and chronological age. Yeah. Um, so perhaps to explain this also a bit more for readers, of course, you're, you're, you can count age based on each year you grow but you can also measure the biological age, which is, of course, can be different because some people or some individuals, they may have their growth spurt at 13 years. Some boys may have it around 17 years. And that's really that determines their biological age. And that also determines a lot of their physiological and psychological adaptations. Um, so I guess that's, that's one of the good things of the LTD model. But of course, that also um, well. What I also did well in some sense is that I made some sensitive periods rely on the biological age and not on the chronological age only. But another issue, of course, with this is that the sensitive periods may differ between individuals, even of the same biological age, based yeah. on their genetic makeup and also based on the prior experience. So if you would have someone that doesn't have any experience of, let's say, resistance training, while and he's, uh, let's say, he just had has his growth spurt, and then in the LTED model, it's assumed that the sensitive period for strength training is right after the growth spurt, if I'm correct. Yeah. Um, but of course, then you could argue, well, if this individual doesn't have any experience in resistance training, then is this still a sensitive period for strength training for this individual? And well, perhaps not, because perhaps we should spend this time developing some basic, well, technique for to, to do some exercises, and we can't capitalize on this so-called sensitive period. 
and that that's one issue of course then that might differ between individuals another issue is, is what i mentioned this genetic makeup sort of we've cited a few studies in in the paper as well they show that the to certain programs certain interventions depend on or at least are associated with your genetics so for some individuals certain interventions or certain training programs may be more effective than for other individuals and it also of course impacts whether an individual is extra sensitive to certain trainings in a certain time and mm. these are really two important issues that haven't been discussed in in these well LTD models and the I guess one of the reasons why I really question the validity of these models because they just assume it's sort of same for everyone and well it, of course this isn't true in reality. Yeah and of course it, it, it's very heavily reliant on peak height velocity and as I'm sure you're aware we also have uh, peak weight velocity and, and, and peak strength velocity as well which don't really seem to come into the conversation when we're looking at um athletic development and these quote-unquote sort of windows of opportunity that may or or may not actually exist anyway yeah yeah exactly it's a very important thing to also consider and yeah as you mentioned that, that these early development models are in that sense i guess a bit too simplistic and that they just consider everyone to be sort of similar except for differing perhaps on their biological age as measured by peak height velocity, but that that's basically the only difference they make between athletes, and of yeah. course girls and 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 well males and, and females, but yeah, these are the only two differences then I guess that, that they make. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, there are other models out there. So I mean, one of the one of the models that I particularly like because it doesn't focus on. I believe there's five elements to the LTAD. Is that is that right? Uh, you mean five sort of general motor abilities they propose? Yeah, that's right, for the LTAD. Um, yeah, I think that's true, yeah. Yeah, whereas obviously there's other models out there. So the youth physical development model that was proposed by Lloyd and Oliver, um, mm -hmm. they cover quite a lot, but there's no real one over-reliance on any specific measure. They do agree that there's... There's different periods of time where they may adapt to perhaps agility or speed, for example, um, but they're always covering every base. Whereas when you look at the LTAD, it seems quite reductionist in, it, in its approach. It seems very simplistic um, and doesn't cover the broad spectrum. If you were looking at it from a lay perspective and didn't have a, a wider appreciation of how the model is made up in and what to actually do with it. Um, I guess what I'm leading on to there really now is as if I was to hand this or if I was to see the LTAD for the first time ever, what would how would I use that as a practitioner and what, what are the, the good and the bad uh, and then you know how should it be used and how do you think it should be used? Yeah, that's a good point. Of course, it probably depends or differs a lot between individuals. But yeah. what's also so some other papers have suggested is that a lot of practitioners basically interpret these so-called windows of opportunities or sensitive periods as critical periods. Mm. And the difference between sensitive periods and critical periods is basically, it has been found in some animal studies, that outside of or inside of a sensitive period, you're extra sensitive to certain experiences. And outside of these sensitive periods, you're less uh, sensitive to these experiences but in a critical period of uh, or outside a critical period you're not at all sensitive to a certain experience yeah. and that's uh, unfortunately the way some practitioners have interpreted these these boxes basically if you would look at or figure one so if you don't see they propose flexibility for example there is a window of opportunity between around six to nine years if i'm correct and then yeah. some practitioners have said, well, we should only or primarily train flexibility between six and nine, because if we do it before uh, we're six or after we're nine or 10 years, then we won't have any effect anymore. And of yeah. course, that's something we know not to be true. And it's also not something that the LTD model necessarily proposes that these are critical periods, but that's more an interpretation that uh, yeah, practitioners have given it to it incorrectly, I think. Mm. Yeah, 
Um, and you know, when you look at it as well, uh, the actual LTAD model, we you know we're saying there's all these different windows of opportunity in uh, certain times to improve motor ability, for example. But we know that throughout throughout the test, throughout growth and maturation, that all aspects can be improved all the way through side by side, which will have a knock on effect to the other abilities. So, for example, if you're only training flexibility, then it goes without saying that flexibility is the only outcome that you're going to get. And if you're looking at LTAD just on its own in, in that light, then you're not going to get much benefit in strength, speed, coordination and endurance or the other four, the other four elements. Um, and that goes into obviously training methods to improve general motor ability. Um, and there is some issues related to the lack of information about training methods within the LTAD as well. Uh, could yeah. you expand on that a little bit for me? Yeah, but perhaps it's good to first explain a bit this, this sort of issue of general motor abilities. And mm. once we've clarified that, I can go into a bit more detail on, on the lack of details into how to train these general motor abilities. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so I will try to explain this this the general motor abilities as follows. So. LTD models, they, they frequently simplify or divide the, the physical aspects of four, uh, sports into five so-called general motor abilities. And the LTD model does this for flexibility, speeds, coordination, and they refer to coordination as skills, yeah. uh, endurance, and strength. And this subdivision is basically made by measuring physical attributes, such as the weight lifter during squatting or basically the maximum velocity during sprinting or your time to do a 20 meter sprint and then using these outcomes to measure or estimate some underlying general motor ability such as strength in case of the weightlifter during squatting or speed as I mentioned um, based on the, the time you've taken to uh, complete a 20 meter sprint. Yeah. And sensitive periods are subsequently proposed to exist for these so-called general motor abilities. And although this reductionism is helpful to reduce the complexity of sports into five manageable constructs, mm -hmm. it also actually incorrectly implies that these are distinct motor abilities that can independently be trained and each have separate sensitive periods. And such simplification, for example, implies that maximum running velocity, so speed if you like, can be improved independently of coordination or strength. And it also further implies that the subsystems that mature and are involved in coordination are largely at least different than subsystems involved in speed or strength. And therefore yeah. we have separate uh, sensitive periods for these general motor abilities. And that, that's a bit the background on how they come up with these general motor abilities. And the issue here is that Several studies have actually shown loads of moderate correlations between measures thought to reflect the same general motor ability. Yeah. And one paper, for example, that, that I recommend reading if this is something uh, you find interesting, is a paper by Ellison, and I think it's from 2019 or 18. And what actually they, they observed a low percentage of shared variance among four tests that are all thought to reflect eye hand coordination. Yeah, and yeah. some other studies we referred to, they also observe low correlations between uh, several measures that are thought to reflect strength, so a low correlation between hand grip strength or knee muscle strength, but also between actual two measures that are both thought to reflect eccentric hamstring strength. So yeah. even very sort of similar specific measures cannot always provide the same information. And basically what we suggested also in the paper that such findings actually suggest that there are no general motor abilities, but rather that each motor skill is a result of a complex integration of abilities that are partly task specific. And therefore yeah. it can also be questioned whether such general motor abilities or whether sensitive periods for general motor abilities exist, or whether they actually should be specific to each motor skill. And of course in LTD models it's really unclear to which motor skills such sensitive periods refer. So if they make a sensitive period for speed, well, does that refer to a sensitive period to improve maximum sprinting velocity or also other measures frequently conceptualized as measures of speed, such as perhaps maximum swimming velocity or cycling or skating, perhaps even throwing velocity, 
acceleration, yeah. change of direction, performance. So there's, there's a lot of stuff basically unclear in these models. Mm. And I think that's that's a that's a general theme throughout any kind of strength measures in youth, uh, adolescent, and child athletes. Is there's there's no they're not very specific about what they're talking about. They just say, oh, we did strength. So you know, you know, like exactly like you've highlighted there. Is it is it muscular endurance? Is it are we looking at real you know power? Are we looking at power outputs? Are we looking at uh, hypertrophy, which you know, as we move through growth maturation, may come into play later on. There's no actual specificity in in what they're deeming uh, a strength measure, for example, um, and that leads on to then that the issues surrounding training methodology uh, and yeah. how there's there's a lack of real um, consensus and and there's there's a lack of really sort of highlighting what training methods they use and is that is that something you you highlighted in the altad paper as well yeah exactly it's a, it's a good point indeed so also as you mentioned indeed it's often clear whether for example um if, if you we now assume that speed refers to sprinting um so so let's make that assumption for now then it's still unclear well should we train then the sprinting speed using plyometric training or resistance training of course we can also we don't necessarily need to sprint only we can also do sort of very related methods to improve something else um, and of course if you don't specify exactly well what should you be doing during the sensitive period then it's very yeah, unclear what you should be doing and you can apply different methods while their effectiveness likely differs and of course, the effectiveness of the method will determine whether large adaptations can be induced during this sensitive period. Yeah. And yeah, we have we cited also several studies that, for example, found plyometric training to be most effective at improving sprinting speed in children, while a combination of plyometric resistance and sprint training was most effective in adolescents. Yeah. And perhaps another interesting study is uh, that we also cited is a study among youth soccer players. And they found that sprint training was slightly less effective at improving sprint and change of direction performance during peak height velocity, which is actually the period that um, coincides with one of the two sensitive periods of train speed in the LTAD model. Um, and so it was slightly less effective um, compared to peak height, uh, pre peak height velocity. Yeah. And such findings just really argue against these sort of general sensitive periods where you could train general motor ability irrespective of the method that you use mm. and yeah perhaps another one that i found interesting that i came across uh, in the book so i also bought the ltad model just to see if it's uh, sorry the, the book of the ltad model just to yeah. see if they provide a bit more detail there but actually in the, in the book they suggest for example to use long slow aerobic intervals to improve yeah. aerobic capacity when growth accelerates during puberty and this would actually partly be in conflict with some suggestions of other researchers that uh, suggest that children and young adolescents may actually require higher intensity uh, exercise with shorter breaks yeah. to elicited adaptations as adolescents and adults, so not very long, slow aerobic training. So, well, overall, there's a lot of research to suggest that certain motor skills or derived general motor abilities may only be extra sensitive to certain training methods and not to all methods that we can potentially use to train that motor skill or general motor ability. Yeah. And this goes back again, doesn't it? To, you know, we, we spoke within the first couple of minutes about how the LTAD itself, and, and not just LTAD, most models are there to provide some guidance to the practitioner at the end, but we're already unwrapping the complexities of working with youth athletes and not even athletes just youth in general uh, and about how much conflicting evidence there is and you, you've highlighted some some big points there um a, a lot so far around, around the strength the strength element of it what about um the, the more aerobic work and uh, is there anything in LTAD that suggests that you know that there's any specificity around that what they should and shouldn't be doing for the aerobic development and any windows where that might be better and what maybe some of the problems of those proposed windows are? Um, yes, so the, the LTD model basically proposed a sort of sensitive periods, window of opportunity 
for endurance training, I think around yeah. 13 to 15, 16 years. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's basically mostly um, centered around biological age. So basically around peak high velocity. Of course, that corresponds yeah. for the average individual with these, these ages I just mentioned. Um, but again, this, the same issue is here that, as I just mentioned, that they don't provide really a lot of detail on, well, how then should we train this, this aerobic or endurance capability? And, well, just the book provides a bit of information, which is actually, as I mentioned, conflicting with the research so far that says we should have this high-intensity exercise, so above 80% of maximum heart rate with shorter breaks because children can actually be seen as more elite endurance athletes already, so they recover much yeah. faster from high-intensity bouts or any kind of exercise, actually. And it also, from a psychological perspective, if you observe children play, they usually do very high, short-intensity bouts, and that's something they find very fun, basically, to do. If you look at the playgrounds at schools, and they don't do very long, slow endurance aerobic activities, basically. So also from a psychological perspective, it makes much more sense to yeah. mimic this natural play in terms of short, high-intensity bursts of activity rather than doing very long, slow aerobic intervals. So that's something I found quite interesting to see this recommendation in the LTAD book on this. Yeah, and that's really that's a really important point that you've just you've just made there. And I've I've come across it before where you hear youth coaches cite Altad or the youth development model or whatever model that they're using at the time and they'll see it as a as a concrete construct that they can't deviate from. Um and often having a, a deleterious impact or a negative impact on the actual coaching outcome and the enjoyment of of the people who were taking part or the people who were being coached uh, yeah. at the time. So that's, that's a really important point that you make there as well. So just looking at the, the, the effect there, so we, we've spoke about different windows and, and some of the considerations and, and issues surrounding having such a concrete uh, inflexible windows of opportunity if you like what mm -hmm. about the effect of prior training and experience um on the individual so we we've spoke about uh you know things like the 10,000 hour rule in the past which i think has been debunked since um and i believe there was a paper by oh, i can't remember his name it's moesh um who they he, he looked at sort of sports that were measured in centimeters uh, seconds or weight, I think it was in grams, uh, and, and what they looked at is those who reached an elite level had accumulated around uh, 6,000 hours of practice by 21, uh, and then actually the less successful athletes, they accumulated more training uh, up to the age of 15 years, um, and the, mo the most successful ones, uh, they accumulated practice from their mid-teens onwards, so there's certainly, again, there's a lot of grey areas with regards to the impact of prior training, experience and ability. I know you covered that a little bit in your paper. Just Could you just expand on that for me? Yeah, sure. So I think it's definitely a good point that you also mentioned this, this issue of early specialisation versus late yeah. specialisation. So that's, yeah, I guess also one of the, things that's very unfortunate the, nowadays basically that we see a lot of athletes having success and then sometimes you hear the success stories and they mention well I've been practicing from my from since I was a little child I've been practicing hard always the mm -hmm. same thing but there are much more also successful stories that actually well don't involve this early specialization and even if yeah. actually asking a bit more detail about these individuals that seem to have early specialization sometimes actually also come from a much more variety of sports backgrounds so, and the research is also quite clear now on this that for a lot of sports it actually appears to be beneficial to don't do this early specialization because indeed the chances of success later on actually decrease and also your risk of injury decreases also your risk of certain psychological issues increases so mm. it's something we, we definitely shouldn't be encouraging. And I guess that's something the LTD model didn't necessarily um, specify. So I'm actually not sure if they, they mentioned a lot on this. So, But yeah, yeah. at least not in relation to sensitive periods, they didn't really mention this. 
Um, but of course, it, it can be relevant because if you have some individual that comes from a completely different background and he doesn't have any experience in the, the things that are relevant for your sport, um, so so let's say we have had know, someone that has done swimming and he hasn't got any experience in sprint training. Well, then if you would say, um, let, let's for now assume that individual is around 13 years old. So it would be around the second um, sensitive period for speed training. Yeah. Well, perhaps then the, the sensitive period absolutely doesn't make sense because this individual doesn't have any prior experience in sprinting if we assume he has just been swimming all his life. And then, well, we don't have any evidence to suggest then that there is still a sensitive period. Of course, we, we don't have any evidence anyway to suggest there is a sensitive period, but in particular for when you have differences between individuals in terms of the prior experience. I, I just think it doesn't make sense to then still keep in this, these generic sensitive periods that don't take any consideration of the prior experience. And again, as I mentioned before, the genetics. So for some yeah. individuals, some training stimuluses may be more effective for some other training stimulus. And well, we're just getting started basically on understanding how this interacts a bit and, and so far of course something I always like to say the eye of the coach so the experience of the coach he knows best yeah. after some while how each athlete responds to certain training stimuli and that's something you know, as a coach you should adjust yeah no I agree and it's it's you, you speak about as well about some of the g genetic predispositions uh, which is a limiting factor to the generalizability if you like of the of the LTAB model if I was a new coach for example and I was going to use the LTAB as a framework to follow what would some of the practical uh, applications for LTAB or just practical considerations in general for working and training and developing youth athletes what have you got any advice on that um, are you referring specifically to the LTD model then for from Bidley or just in general? Yeah, let's let's cover the LTAB model. What let's take some of the good points from that and and some of the points you'd use from that, and then just as it in general as well would be nice because uh, you know we we I think we both agree and understand that there's there's a lot outside of LTAD which can be used and bought in as well. Uh, yeah. So we'll start with the LTAB model first, I think. Yeah, so perhaps to start off with some, some positive things. So I think one of the very good things that the LTT model did is to make practitioners aware of the differences between yeah. biological and chronological age, and also the differences that can follow, uh, or the consequences that, um, that follow from this for training. So I think that that's one of the very positive things. Um, one of the, of course, things that I'm uh, less a fan of are the sensitive periods. Yeah. And actually, there's also quite an interesting paper. They uh, investigated how coaches actually see these sensitive periods. And even though the, the sensitive periods appear quite popular, um, they have also been reported as a barrier to implement the, the model yeah. by coaches. And therefore, we they also... They don't understand that period either, do they? So they don't understand how to measure biological age or... So if they don't understand that, then they can't really use the LTAD to its fullest capacity anyway. Yeah, exactly. I think that what might be one of the issues why perhaps some coaches sort of see it as a barrier. And actually, I can also imagine one other barrier is that this lack of guidance on which methods should we be using in these sensitive periods. And also, you know, that there can be information you know, on methods, like I mentioned before, should we do plyometric training or uh, sprint training to improve speed? Yeah. But it can also be other things like how many sessions per week should we do in this sensitive period? Should we do speed training only uh, or, or like two sessions per week devoted to just speed enough? Um, how many reps should we do? How many hours per week should we spend on this? And that's a lot of information, of course, coaches actually need if they want to implement something. If you just mention, you know, you should do some extra training that's it's very broad and, and not specific. And I guess that that is one of the reasons why it might be seen as a barrier to implement this. And perhaps also partly a lack of scientific knowledge might also act as another barrier, but I'm not sure if a lot of coaches are actually aware of this. Yeah. 
No, I agree. But I mean, you know, the Altad is a as a general starting point and certainly as a discussion catalyst, as you as you mentioned there, is I think's been is a fantastic tool just to get people talking and appreciating and understanding that there is a difference. Uh, you know, age isn't just a number, as they say. Um, There's also a big biological aspect um, that we have to take into consideration. Um, But it can also be the bit, you know, a bit of a curse because they don't necessarily know how to, how to measure biological age, for example. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, how about something... sorry yeah, yeah go ahead yeah perhaps something else that also comes to my mind here is something i noticed i think it was in the book perhaps also um of, of the ltd model is that they mentioned somewhere that um, they will adjust the model as sens- or as scientific evidence um, comes available basically so they will update yeah. uh, continuously update as new information becomes available um so and that's something I found interesting because there has already been a critique paper of the sensitive periods in the LTD model, uh, sp- sort of specifically on sensitive periods, and yeah. as well as some other papers, they sort of briefly discussed issues with sensitive periods. But despite all this stuff, the LTD model hasn't adjusted the, L- the, the sensitive period. So that's something I found quite interesting and was also one of the reasons why I thought it would be relevant to write this paper because I think now we provide some very specific issues with the sensitive periods and also based on some more recent evidence. So the previous papers that have relied mostly on some cross-sectional studies and here we have included a bit more some some intervention studies also with a bit better control of maturation status. So, well, I hope it, yeah. in, in the end it will therefore be removed from the, the LTD models. But uh, yeah, let, let's yeah. see in a few years uh, where we are. Yeah, I really hope so. I mean, for, for, for me, when I first came into this field and, and was looking at, you know, how to train and develop a youth athlete, and I thought, right, okay, I'll go back to my strength conditioning days and I'll look at how to develop power and muscular endurance and all. And that, doesn't really seem to exist within the pediatric literature, if you like. So, yeah. you know, it lacks a certain amount of context, um, which is unfortunate, but it's nice to see papers like yours that are kind of highlighting that, you know, the good and the bad, if you like, uh, of these models and where the research needs to be guided in order to not change the models, not to completely get rid of them, but certainly to improve uh, and build upon them as well. Um, yep. Just on that note, and I think it was the second question that was raised before, what are some of the, the practical sort of considerations and, and applications of models outside of LTAD then? What else is available to them uh, and how should they use some of these other methods and models? Um, if you could expand on that, please. Yeah, so I think one, one of the models that indeed has been now also gaining popularity is the Youth Physical Development Model by Roddy uh, yeah. Lloyd. And I, I think indeed this model also doesn't rely necessarily on sensitive periods. And yeah, the, like like some other models indeed, it proposes where well, we can train any ability during all ages. And perhaps we can prioritize some abilities uh, during some ages. And I think that's also something that, that makes sense. Not necessarily yeah. because we have a sensitive period, because, but, but perhaps because we have other reasons to do this, for example, we know that uh, athletes are more susceptible to injuries when, well, basically during the, the peak height velocity, so when they grow faster. Yeah. So based on such findings, you could argue, well, we need to implement some some more, uh, let's call it for now, very broad injury preventative training. So it can be a lot of uh, things, of course. But yeah. just to get the point, so there are, f- there, are there are still some reasons to, to emphasize certain uh, training methodologies during some phases of development. But I don't think this is necessarily based on the sort of sensitive periods for general motor abilities. Um, and I think that's something that the youth physical development model, as I mentioned, does this quite well. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's definitely one model I think that can be broadly used. And of course, there are also there improvements to be made in terms of how exactly should we structure the training, what methods are most effective during exactly what phases of development. So that's what we try to provide a bit of information in here, but again, we didn't discuss this extensively also because there is just still a lack of 
information on this. And yeah. Like I mentioned with, with sprinting, now we know there's a bit of information that plyometric training might be more effective to train sprinting in children and actual sprinting might be more effective in adolescents. Yeah. Um, which sort of makes sense because the plyometrics are probably sort of easier to learn initially than the, the, the full uh, full speed sprinting movement. But studies like these is we need much more to actually see during which phase of development are which exercises more effective for which specific motor skills. And based on this, then we can actually make much more um, applicable models rather than sort of very generic models that everything is always trainable which still I feel leaves the coaches a bit in, in sort of in the middle of what, what exactly then should I be doing. Yeah. Of course, it's, I think it's a way forward. So that's something that should definitely be, be emphasized. And it's, but there's still also a lot of work to do, still to be done. Yeah, no, I agree. And it, it's about getting that information out there as well. I think when it comes to, you know, using some of these models and, getting across to clubs if you're working with clubs and, and and to parents that there are elements of these models such as strength training that are often looked at um negatively still yeah. by the general population um and you know just having these altad models as, as a a catalyst of discussion are good to start bringing or correcting some of these old tales of you know strength training is bad you can't do it whilst they're growing or you can't do it um, you know, under the age of ten is one that I've heard recently. You can't do strength training, um, yep. so it's nice to see how these models kind of provide a guide, if you like, to to the practitioners. Yeah, um, exactly. And I think yeah, also I mean, there's one paper or two papers. I think it's a series of papers, a sort of position statements, also by Rodri Lloyd and a lot of other colleagues, where they also discuss a lot of these issues and a lot of myths indeed like you will uh, if, if you do resistance training you will stop uh, or hinder your, your growth you'll get injuries and i think it's really good to have a bit more attention to all of these myths going around and, and i guess one of the myths also is, is these sensitive periods and uh, yeah it's good to get a bit more information on this out definitely yeah yeah no i agree and it's that you know this is why we're having these conversations and and moving forward, you know, hopefully what we'll get is not just sort of throwing mud at the wall and, and seeing what sticks as a coach, but allowing the coaches to be able to take a, a multidisciplinary approach that's informed by science, you know, that considers the physiological, the psychological, but also the sociological and the educational contributions to developing, you know, a young talent that's not just efficacious but is also rewarding and you get the buy-in from from the individual themselves because a lot of these models as well the they often lack the um the context from the child's perspective as well like what do they yeah. actually want to do yeah yeah absolutely it's a very important one i think also as a coach especially as a youth coach you're not just responsible for the, sort of uh, the, the physical training part the very small thing which are actually Think of at least if you're a good coach you're also trying to be partly responsible for the sort of general upbringing a bit of, of the child especially if you're coaching athletes at a at a uh, elite level where, where you see them a lot of days basically of the week then it's also a very big responsibility to not just think about their physical development because if they drop out at some point they still need to have also or be able at least to have a further career and also after they stop with sports, even if they would make it to the level, then I think also you should try to develop them as a person and not just the, the, the physical capabilities. Yeah. And I think that's definitely a good point you mentioned that a lot of models, at least what, what I've been reading, they, they often they just focus either on the physical aspect or just on, let's call it the psychological or sociological aspect. Yeah. And I think there are a few models that now are integrating this, uh, which was thing is very good, but uh, yeah. I don't think they have gotten the attention yet that they uh, deserve. No, definitely not, no. Um, and again, that's why these conversations are really good to have. I mean, what, what would you like to see in the future? What If you could add anything to a model or design your own model, how would you like that to look or what would you like to see taken... Uh, a bit more of the limelight moving forwards with regards to youth development and, and the development of models. Uh, that's even if you think models are applicable. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. Um, 
so so I think first of all, perhaps a very comprehensive model is of course something that would be referable, but on the other hand, that's also not really applicable, I guess. So I've seen some models indeed combining all these sociological, psychological, physical things. Um, and yeah. I guess eventually, of course, it's something that is the ideal word. But on the other hand, I don't think coaches like reading a model or a paper that's uh, 200 pages long and tries yeah. to specify everything in exact detail on what you should be doing. So that's, yeah. uh, I guess, a bit of the trade-off that, that we have here. So if I would develop a model, so I'm not sure if even indeed I'm a big fan of models, but <laughs> uh, well, I, I guess if I would do so, I probably would do something just focusing on the physical aspect because that's initially where my expertise is, of course. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, it probably would be something uh, largely or at least partly similar to what the, the youth physical development model looks like where you can train every so-called general motor ability during every stage of development. Um, but again, as I mentioned, I don't think this is also very informative to coaches. So I guess at some point, it's, we, we just need to have more information on what methods actually work best, at least in, in general or on average. And then yeah. we can slowly start perhaps to develop a model um, that, that yeah, has a bit more uh, information on, well, what method should you be using? And stuff like that, and yeah, yeah. Perhaps also one thing actually I would remove from the physical, the youth physical development model. I think they also have quite an emphasis on muscular hypertrophy, which I also yeah. find quite interesting because I think it's well, it, it can be relevant for some sports, but I actually see it more as a sort of side beneficial or detrimental effect. And so if you need to have a lot of body mass, for example, some uh, places in rugby then perhaps you could specifically train for it. But I actually think for a lot of other sports, like, I don't know, soccer, is actually mm -hmm. sort of detrimental side effect if you're at least at some point getting too heavy for your, your running economy, for example. So yeah. I found it quite interesting that it gets quite a lot of a sort of prominent yeah. position in the model, while I think it's, it's more, you know, it, it, we should definitely train, let's call it the general motorability strength, but I don't think we should necessarily be emphasizing, in addition to that, muscular hypertrophy. It's more, I see it more as a side effect that can yeah. sometimes occur and not necessarily something we should focus on. Where do you think that's, because that's quite a recent sort of development in the literature. What, what do you think the thought process is behind that from a physiological standpoint? Why, why the emphasis on, on hypertrophy? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I also don't know. So, of course, there is, there is a relation between uh, muscle, muscular cross-sectional area, in particular physiological cross-sectional area, muscular strength. Yeah. So I guess that's at least the, the physiological reason. But, yeah, again, there is, the reasons aren't perfect. So, yeah, uh, yeah to be honest, I don't know. I think there's a lot of people just coming also from a, a, a sort of uh, bodybuilding and powerlifting background yeah. where it doesn't matter if you have a lot of muscle because every sort of half a kilo increase in strength that you will get will be beneficial but if you're really looking at uh, developing athletes then you really need to consider some the, the sort of beneficial and detrimental effects so if you have larger muscle mass also the distance between your muscle fibers and uh, um, blood vessels will increase for example you will have a mm -hmm smaller density of mitochondria. So there's a lot of things to consider and I don't think that's always yeah, well well considered, particularly if people are not coming from, for example, an endurance background. Yeah. And it's very often just said, well, stronger is better and we don't care about anything else. <laughs> yeah, I've been guilty of that in the past, I'm going to admit. Um, I've always been, yeah, stronger is better, but obviously as you as you advance and develop through not only just through an academic or a scientific standpoint, but just as you get involved in other sports, I mean, just, just as a bit of background, I've, I've powerlifted and weightlifted at a, an international level, mm -hmm. but I've also, you know, done some quite big marathons and I mean, nothing to the degree that you've done it, but you can see how having the strength sometimes can be detrimental, albeit it can be beneficial to injury prevention, for instance. And there is a, an association uh, between strength and motor control. 
Um, but I, I sometimes think it can be an afterthought. Some of these processes that we think of first and foremost in an adult, I think can be a bit of an afterthought in the paediatric uh, research and literature. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So yeah, it will be interesting to see if, if there are some models perhaps coming in the future where we see less an emphasis on muscular hypertrophy and perhaps just much more on yeah, just just strength and muscular hypertrophy is a side effect. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um just to finish off then, because I always I always like to ask the, the the people who have been on, um if you could recommend, you know, one piece of literature and you can be biased, you can recommend your own if you recommend one piece of literature or one resource, you know, whether it be a podcast or whatever it may be, um, then then where would you like to steer people? And this is, we'll have two, I think, because of your background. So we'll have one sort of general sports science kind of literature or resource, but also one that's uh, specific to paediatrics, if you could, please. Yeah. Yeah, this is a very difficult question, I guess. I, I don't really yeah. have one single paper, so I will focus perhaps on papers that are relevant to the sensitive periods uh, mm. paper we wrote. But even there, I don't really have one single paper that I found most interesting. So, yeah. well, perhaps I can limit two or limit myself to two or three papers. Would, would that help? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, so perhaps one of the papers I found really interesting that comes to my mind is a paper by, I think, Sebastian uh, Ratel, if I pronounce it correctly, and Anthony Blazevich. And it's a paper in which they basically argue that children are metabolically comparable to well-trained adult endurance athletes. Um, and there have been some comments on the paper, which I also highly recommend to read, uh, as they provide also some very interesting additional insights. But yeah. uh, well, the, these are, I think, a series then of, of two or three, I think three papers, if you also include the comments. And okay. I think uh, I found them really interesting uh, from the sort of energetic metabolic perspective. Um, another one that's, again, I also found that equally interesting is a paper by Mersman and, and other colleagues in uh, Berlin. Um, mm -hmm. And basically what they investigated is um, muscle and tendon imbalances and they discussed this in relation to muscle and tendon uh, properties. And they basically they argued that if you have an imbalanced development in muscle and tendon uh, properties, then you yeah. can increase your risk of tendon injuries, which is one of the reasons why we see so many tendon injuries in youth athletes. When uh, uh -huh. during certain phases of growth, then the muscle grows faster than the tendon. Um, so the muscle strength increases faster than tendon stiffness, which could be one of the reasons why we get tendinopathy. So that's yeah. also one uh, paper I found uh, really interesting. Um, perhaps the, the last one then to, to really limit myself, that also comes to my mind, uh, mind is a paper, um, I think the authors, uh, it's the paper I mentioned before by Ellenson and colleagues. Yeah. I think yeah. again, it's quite recent from, from 2017 or 18. Yeah, and right, yeah. basically in, in the paper, the authors investigated whether there exists something like a general motor ability, in this case, general uh, eye-hand coordination ability, and actually showed that it does not really exist. So if, if people are interested or listeners are interested in learning more about these general motor abilities, then that also might be uh, quite an interesting paper to get started with. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. No, that's really good, really useful. Um, so, yes. So, I mean, that is a an introduction into your paper, and I'll, I'll put a link up to your paper as well, and, and people can read on it and, you know, try and look at what we've spoken about and marry it up with the paper. Um, where else can they find out more about yourself and more about your work? Where can they be guided? So, I know you've got a, a Twitter, and um, what else have you got? Um, so indeed, I'm mostly active on Twitter, where I yeah. well, I'm, I'm mostly active there for sort of sports science uh, stuff. Facebook, I'm also active, sharing sports science stuff. Sometimes a bit of personal stuff, but uh, mostly sports science stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a YouTube channel. I don't upload things often there, but well, sometimes I do. So that, that could be interesting. Uh, of course, the website, I guess, uh, is, is perhaps the most uh, important overview of, of all things that I'm doing. Uh, yeah. LinkedIn, I'm also active, just sharing stuff. But 
I guess for interaction, it's, it's Twitter is probably best uh, yeah. to follow. Brilliant. Well, when we post this up, I'll post it up on the Twitter through the Basie's uh, Pediatric SIG link. Uh, obviously, I'll tag you in it then, and and people can reach out and get in touch and and you know engage as they see fit. Um, yep. But for now, that's it. We are done here. Um, so again, on behalf of the Basie's Pediatric SIG. Uh, and myself, um, you know, I can't can't thank you enough. Certainly, with everything that's going on at the moment, and I know everyone's quite busy. Um, and I, I hope that you and your family and your friends remain safe and healthy throughout this time. And yeah. thanks again. Yeah, thanks again for having me on. So also, please stay safe and healthy. And yeah, another might be a good time to listen to podcasts. So that's the that's yeah. uh, see it positive. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Thank you very much. All right, thanks.